When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the Booker Prize podcast with me, James Walton. Me, Jay Hamia. And this week is the second part of our review of this year's Booker Prize shortlist. Uh, last week, we tackled If I Survive You by Jonathan Escoffrey, This Other Reading by Paul Harding, and Study for Obedience by Sarah Bernstein. So if you want to know what we made of those, uh, make sure you give it a listen. Joe, we have a bit of a, a bit of a kicking to this other reading. We quite, oh, well, you loved Study for Obedience, <laughs> and we both quite liked it. If I Survive You. Any second thoughts on any of them? Gosh. No, I think on reflection, I do stand by everything we said. <laughs> uh, uh, fair enough. Well, let's let's move on to the remaining um, the remaining three then. Um, so, so what, what what books are we are we left with, Joe? Okay, so this week we are going to be tackling the remaining twenty twenty three Booker Prize shortlist: Western Lane by Chetna Maru, Prophet Song by Paul Lynch, and The Beasting by Paul Murray. We're going to be starting with Western Lane. Tell me about Western Lane then, Joe. With pleasure. Um, it's one of many family sagas on the shortlist, and it's narrated by Gopi, who, along with her older sisters, Mona and Kush, has recently lost her mother. Um, Western Lane is actually the name of a sports community centre the sisters uh, visit often in the novel. Um, all three of the girls have been playing squash since early childhood, but after the loss of their mother, the sport takes on a new resonance for Gopi and her father, who trains her. And as she begins to show a particular aptitude for it, preparations for a tournament in Durham become a channel for the family's grief. The prose is really sparse, but it's littered with jewels which take the form of really gorgeous details, sometimes drawn from the sisters' Gujarat heritage and sometimes from descriptions of squash matches being played out, in particular via recordings of real-life Pakistani player Jahangir Khan, who Gopi watches on a loop to strengthen her own game. And it's Maru's debut novel, so there's a certain etiquette in discussing those. But James, I believe you actually genuinely did quite like this one. I know, I really like this one. Mm -hmm. um, as you say, there is a lot of squash uh, in it, but it's not just squash. Um, on the opening page, she's playing squash, as she will do. Um, and there's, she hears the noise from the court next door, which she describes as a steady melancholy rhythm of some, some, someone she can't see. And that sort of seems to me to be you know, her mother's absence being present, which it is throughout the book. Also on the opening page, she talks about the echo, which is the ball striking the wall of the court is louder than the shot itself, uh, which in a way is how the, the novel itself works, I think, which the words, the prose is very quiet, very mm. gentle, very understated. And yet um, there's a deep pain beneath it. And it has a 
strong resonance that, and, and the deep pain that the prose both reveals and tries so hard to conceal. And I think that is really brilliantly done. So, so here's just a, like a, a fairly typical bit. There's, um, she's at home and it says, air had been trapped inside our radiators for more than a month, which meant the big sections were cold and the house never got properly warm. My sisters and I dressed in long sleeves and hooded tops and said nothing to Pa. In the past, Pa would have fixed the problem right away, but now he ignored it. Mona came and stood next to me. It wasn't just the warmth we were seeking. We wanted to feel the knocking as we stood against the radiator. We understood the knocking was only the air trapped inside. We wanted to feel it. Again, there's just enormous amounts of pain somehow behind that. And I think I would suggest psychologically, in a psychologically realistic way, this isn't a book where... You know, they're going to say, their dad's going to say to her, I love you, Goppy, and she's going to say, I love you, Dad. But there'll be just little scenes like this. So there's one bit where she, about the only time, really breaks down and sobs for her mother, and then she develops um, a fever shortly after that, and uh, she's in bed. Um, and we have this. And I think this means, Dad, I love you, Goppy, I love you, but this is all we get. Pa never came into our bedroom, but he did then. Maybe it was only once. It was just me and him. He sat on the child's stool in front of the dressing table for a while, not saying anything. But as he was leaving, he came by my bed and rested his hand lightly on my chest and then tucked my blanket in such a way that for the whole night I didn't dare move in case I undid what he had done. Mm. My lamp glowed orange and I could hear my own heart beating softly. And again and again, there's just that. We get glimpses of the, how badly the father's suffering there, I think, even, just in the way he tucks in, rather obviously rather clumsily, the blanket. Um, and this makes it all the more shocking and powerful when things do burst out. There's one bit where they're at a fun fair where Mona rather likes this boy who's in, uh, who starts sort of flirting with someone else, some skateboard wielding <laughs> hussy. <laughs> and then um, I think we call her a manic pixie dream girl. <laughs> uh, okay. Manic pixie dream girl. Um, and um, Mona sort of says, "Look, you realise none of this would be happening if Ma was still alive, and Kush just absolutely goes for her." Yeah. Then get up and sort of carry on but just those little moments there's one bit most dramatically of all really one bit where Gopi overhears her uh, her dad talking to a um a woman who works at the at the center yes who's also the mother of um a boy that Gopi quite fancies called Jed um and Jed's mum and, and uh, Gopi's father are often going out to have cigarettes together she overhears um her dad saying to Jed's mum the girls sometimes I look at them and I think they will eat me and she reflects that this is probably the saddest thing he said out loud in his whole life. And that out loud's quite good. So she knows again how much he's hurting. But actually, the next she then goes onto the court with her dad and absolutely wallops the ball into his jaw. Yeah. It seems deliberately, but again, that's that's left. Um, so she's angry with him, she's sorry for him. And all of these feelings are unexpressed. And I think a book that that, that can do the unsaid so brilliantly. It's quite an achievement, given that by definition you can't say it. Mm. So I, I think I think it's extremely good. I agree. I think I would add to that. Um, possibly, I, I, I read this in a very personal way, but it's also a book that's extremely adept at tracking the evolution of girlhood to womanhood. Um, and the sisters in this novel are kind of forced to mature a lot faster than they otherwise would have had their mother still been alive. And you see that most clearly with Mona, who kind of becomes the matriarch of the family, you know, gets a job at a hair salon sweeping um, cuttings and 
Yeah, she's the oldest one, and she um, starts cooking, doing all the cooking and so on. Yeah. And also gets starts sort of slightly throwing her weight around as well. Yes. You, you can't help but feel for these girls and what the absence of um, their mother has, has done to them. It's not only transformed them, but the way that they're perceived by their father. So one of the predicaments Gopi has is that she actually resembles her mother quite closely. It makes um, her relationship with her father that much more slightly painful. Um, there's this bit that really got to me um, that reads, uh, when finally I came in, Pa would look up from his papers and he would just stare as if he was startled. It's Ma, Kush would tell me later. You look like Ma. If we arrived at home to find that Mona hadn't cooked, Pa would wait for me to come in and he'd send me and Kush to the VG store. We'd come home with tins of baked beans and mini frozen pizzas, which would make Mona angry with the three of us. Um... What visitors we had were very interested in what we ate every day, and this too made Mona angry. Her moods did not seem to trouble Pa. He didn't seem to notice. And so much no, underlying no, grief bound yeah, up. Yeah, that's right. Well, they're all sort of grieving separately, aren't they, really? And they're, 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 it isn't going to be a family of group hugs or anything. So M Mona, Mona does it by sort of tackling the, the domestic duties. Kush more, withdraws into herself more. Gopi takes up squash. You know, moderately obsessively, and again, they don't. It never quite comes together in, as I say, what seems to me an authentic way. Do you think? Yeah, I do. I, I do. I do think the idea that they don't all sit around and say, you know, how are you feeling? How are you feeling? Let's all discuss more. And yet, they all know it, and we know it too. Uh, any reservations about this at all, really? Um, I think the only other thing that gave me slight pause. But I did sort of, towards the end, you know, once the tournament is over, found myself going, I wonder why squash, like of all things, as a as a narrative device in this book. Do this too much squash? Could it, could, well, I, maybe not too much squash, but I, I just sort of felt, I, I understand the whole significance of a, you know, Pakistani squash player and representation and um, maybe that's why, but still, I just kind of found myself thinking, you know, a, a novel about grief and sisterhood and um, maturation and squash. The squash does kind of work for, the, for for those metaphorical reasons that I mentioned right at the beginning, almost. I suppose. I mean, I guess it works in terms of um, the kind of discipline that this novel is very engaged in as a practice for the sisters and also the prose. And also there's a thing in ghosting, apparently, in squash, which is you basically do everything except the ball's not there. Oh, yes, that's so and that, true, that, yes. That, that's, I, I think. All right, Again, without you've convinced stretching, me. Okay, with, is, is the absent mother that they, you know, they're doing everything except what really matters is not there. Yeah, that's a really good theory. Love that. That's probably actually a, just a very valid reading of the book that I missed. Uh, okay, so let's move on to our, our next book, which is Prophet Song by Paul Lynch. This is the fifth novel by the Irish writer Paul Lynch, whose previous four have been somewhere between well-received and prize-winning. All of them, I think. Of those, three were historical novels of various kinds. But Prophet Song, by contrast, is set in a near-future version of Ireland where a totalitarian government has come to power and uh, the novel begins with something that's never a good sign in such circumstances, a knock on the door late one night by the secret police. And from there, the book is seen almost completely through the eyes of Eilish Stack, a suburban microbiologist, wife and mother, whose husband Larry is taken away by those same secret police. And from then on, twice heroically, really keep her family together and to take care of her senile father too as the political situation 
uh, in Ireland gets worse and worse and more and more oppressive. Joe, what did you make of this one? Yeah, it, it was the most surprising um, one on this list for me. I expected to feel ambivalent about it. And in fact, I, I was really deeply, deeply affected by it. I think, um, to be completely honest, I'm not very au fait with my um, Irish political history. And so had only really a glancing understanding of um, the political background or how accurate um, Prophet Song may be as a dystopia but in a way I kind of didn't care because it's it's so firmly rooted um, through Ailish's perspective as a mother trying to keep her family together and I think the core question of this book really is why do you stay yes that's right he says one of the sort of recurring things in in, because she's got this sister in canada who says you know just god's sake get out and come to join us yes she says uh well um, you know what about dad who's who's the senile guy what if he falls and has a um you know has a fall as as all people do or you know what about the, the children i'm hoping to um i've got plans for them and uh, there's this um, idea that uh, that an important factor in history is people who leave it too late to leave. Yeah, um, I think near the end that there, there is this, it, it's sort of like civil freedom and unfreedom and um, how excruciatingly slowly you lose your basic human rights um, and you only realise where it's when it's too late. So um, there is this bit uh, that, Uh, Ailish is speaking and she says I suppose other people seem to know but I never understood how they were so certain what I mean is you could have never imagined it not in a million years all that was to happen and I could never understand those that left how they could just leave like that leave everything behind all that life all that living it was absolutely impossible for us to do so at the time and the more I look at it the more it seems there was nothing we could do anyhow what I mean is there was never any real room for action that time with the visas how we were supposed to go when we had so many commitments so many responsibilities and when things got worse there was just no room for maneuver i think what i'm trying to say is that i used to believe in free will if you had asked me before all this i would have told you i was free as a bird but now i'm not so sure now i don't see how free will is possible when you are caught up within such a monstrosity one thing leads to another thing until the damn thing has its own momentum and there is nothing you can do i can see now that what i thought of as freedom was really just struggle and that there was no freedom all along and i think it's brilliant on why people find it hard to leave places where you think for god's sake just get out because it's not that easy for sure it is and i think um something that lynch does in a in a really affecting way that feels personal to each of these characters rather than you know as as something that's just simply told to you or given an exposition is why you may feel it really really important to stay so for example Ailish's father has dementia and at a certain point her sister is trying to convince um Ailish that he should be smuggled out to Canada and Ailish says, what my father needs is to remain at home, to be surrounded by his memories, to have the past within reach. In time, there will be nothing left to him but shadows, a strange dream of the world. To send him into exile now would be to condemn him to a kind of non-existence. She's talking about her father, but in a way she's also talking about herself because quite recently her oldest son Mark has been um, sent for conscription. 
and she's been thinking he could return at any moment. He'll slide open the patio door and slouch into the kitchen as though he had never gone. He'll go to the fridge and give out that there is no ham and pull a chair, asking if there's any news of his dad, his dad, Larry Stack, who has also disappeared. I suppose it's this idea of what is there to make of us if we don't have our home, our memories, our material possessions. I think there's one, actually, I found quite affecting passage where Ailish is looking at her mother's uh, wedding ring, an engagement ring, and she thinks, well, I used to treasure these, but now they're just objects that I could sell for the cash that I need to buy basic necessities like food, batteries, water. Um, and that's another kind of stripping away of her humanity as a result of war. I think as well, one of the really compelling things about this book to me is how clear-eyed Lynch is um, on portrayals of war. Um, there's a point at which media is being essentially just censored by no. the GNSB. No well, one's they're, they're the secret police, aren't they? Yeah. Yes, and no one's completely totally sure of what's happening outside their own houses they have to rely on international news and so um one of Ailish's children Bailey takes a drink of milk and asks if the country is now at war and Ailish studies the milk moustache and the question in his eyes they are calling it an insurgency on the international news Molly says Molly is is Ailish's daughter but if you want to give war its proper name call it entertainment we are now tv for the rest of the world I think Lynch is really attuned to the fact that um, a lot of the cruelty of war is that if you don't have proximity to the pain that it inflicts, you just don't care. And I think one of the things about Ailish is that she's only able to delude herself up to the point that her house is literally bombed and then she is firmly in proximity to pain. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with all of that. I, I, I really like the... Well, there's a great phrase in this happiness hides in the humdrum mm. so there's one bit before it all falls to bits where they're just all watching telly together and that's all you want really yeah um and it's also quite exciting when they uh you know it becomes quite a thriller as they try to escape but i do have one problem with this book and it is quite a big one i'm afraid <laughs> which is that i just don't believe the premise of a totalitarian island <laughs> especially as paul lynch doesn't really explain anything about how it came to be all we get is one secret policeman saying on page 10 Mr. Stack, you will, no, you will be aware, no doubt, of the Emergency Powers Act that came into effect this September in response to the ongoing crisis facing the state. Uh, that's it. Now, in his, an interview on the Booker Prize website, uh, Paul Lynch has asked, you know, why, why has Ireland done so well in this year's Booker Prize, as usual? And he says, uh, you know, because the government's so <laughs> nice to writers, really. Uh, you know, we don't pay any income tax. We get plenty of grants and so on. So they don't pay any income tax? No. Artists in, in Ireland, they're paying income tax. Do you have to be born in Ireland for that to work? No, I think, I think, I think people have, have moved there for that reason. I'm moving to Ireland. <laughs> but just, just, just before you do, Jane, <laughs> but let's hold those thoughts because we're going to take a, a short break now, um, after which we'll be back with part two. Welcome back to part two of this episode of the Book of Prize podcast. So, James, you were saying... So the question is, how did Ireland get from that place 
to this place here. And he just doesn't imagine that enough for me at all. There's an interesting puff from uh, Colin McCann, who's uh, an Irish writer, and he says about this book, about totalitarianism, if it can happen in the most impossible place, it can happen everywhere, is what's great about this book. But there's a clue in the word impossible. It can't happen in the most impossible place. It, uh, you know, it couldn't happen in Ireland, I don't think. Um, or, or at least, if an author's going to base an entire novel on the fact that it has happened in Ireland, he needs to imagine everything more thoroughly, I really think. I don't think you can just buy this. So there's the BBC still going, the Irish Times is still going, presumably the EU, social media. Northern Ireland is still British. The church is, Catholic Church is still a thing. Yet none, you know, what they're up to doesn't just go unexplained, it doesn't get mentioned. So I would suggest it's, almost, it's not so much a liberal dystopia, it's almost a liberal fantasy, really. The idea that, you know, we're, all, all us nice people are beleaguered on every side by the right. Uh, it actually says in Beasting by Paul Murray, um, fantasies of disaster can actually be an attempt to find relief. I think there's signs in the book also that Lynch kind of knows the problem. You know, there are people... So national, when the National Service is introduced to fill the repressive army, you know, one lawyer says, can you imagine this, that in this country? No, you can't. It <laughs> uh, also seems that when the government's about to win an election, so people are actually voting for it, somebody else says, this is unthinkable for a country like ours, which it is. There's then a ban on reading foreign news with news channels blocked, a total internet blackout. And Bailey, this kid says, that's ridiculous. How can they just turn it off like that? Because I, and I think I've got a theory of what's going on here, which is um, the giveaway is when Ailish is, uh, looks at a Dublin street and says, she's watching the street as though it belongs to some other city. And I reckon in the end it kind of does, because we know from interviews that this book was inspired by Syria. So Paul, Paul Lynch has said, you know, he looked at Syria and he, and he saw the implosion of an entire nation, the scale of its refugee crisis and the West's indifference. And uh, he wanted to write about this. And then he goes on to say, I couldn't write directly about Syria, so I brought the problem to Ireland as a simulation. Now, two questions there. Why couldn't he write about Syria directly? And secondly, what does he mean by a simulation? Does he mean that what if Ireland was Syria? But it really, really isn't. And it, and it can't suddenly just be without everything about Ireland, its history, its geography, its people, its political system, being completely different. And they're not completely different in Provincetown. So I, I don't think you end the book thinking, this must be what it's like in Syria, but just this is unbelievable in Ireland. Um, and, and I think there's almost signs here and there, little fossils of the fact that it was once a book about Syria. So Mark, Mark watches uh, beheadings of ISIS beheadings on, on video too, which inspires him to join the rebels. But that, again, that seems to belong to a Syrian novel. And I think even that bit you read, We Are Now TV for the Rest of the World, I think is, is what Syria had become or has become. But I can't imagine that happening in Ireland. What would, you know, what would the, what would, what would any, I just, it would be all right if it was put just as a sort of mythical thing, but it's not. It's put as something that could happen in Ireland. Now, if it did happen in Ireland, everything else in the book is fantastic. But, I, and all that stuff you talk about is fantastic. The family stuff is great. But I, 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 I don't, do you think I'm being too literal minded? I just cannot get over the fact that it wouldn't happen. Couldn't happen. It's just, and it's not, it's not imagined thoroughly enough. In a way, I think Lynch does sort of address the points you're making head on quite close to the end of the novel. Um, and he writes, um, the prophet sings not of the end of the world, 
but of what has been done and what will be done and what is being done to some but not others, that the world is always ending over and over again in one place but not another, and that the end of the world is always a local event. It comes to your country and visits your town and knocks on the door of your house and becomes to others but some distant warning, a brief report on the news and echo of events that has passed into folklore. And I th I think the point of the book perhaps is to turn an improbability into a reality and that's why um, it really does spend all of its time focusing on Ailish and focusing on family matters and um, expanding on the horrors of war through the loss of patriarchs and children and meat in a shop and um you know the availability of batteries the price of paracetamol being you know tripled quadrupled but to be really honest with you James and like this might um this might sound a bit inane I I just really didn't care whether it was possible for it to happen in <laughs> Ireland or but, not. I mean, that, that, fair enough. That's, I just, that's, that's got to be the only was, way of enjoying this book. It I think was, it's, it's it was not to so, mind. And I, I, I just did. It works for me emotionally. And, and because, you know, I think actually it's all the better that it um, is a bit fuzzy on the kind of um, logistics of, of Irish politics because you can transpose it m more easily onto... Sounds corny, but your soul—you <laughs> can okay, feel well, for these characters that, 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 a bit more. As I say, I think it's more a liberal fantasy than a liberal dystopia. I think we love the idea. It's I think weirdly, it's an effective one, weirdly, <laughs> at the very least. But I think it's a weirdly thrilling idea that oh yeah, this could happen to us. You know, the far end could be easy take of a island. No, they couldn't. And I then, hope you're right. Uh, I'll, <laughs> I'll put some money on it. <laughs> as I say, lots of good things about it. Also, I'm not dead keen on the fact that every section is a single paragraph. I, we, we talked at the beginning of the first episode of this two-parter about the weird fashion now for extremely long paragraphs. Oh, I think we should actually talk about this. I, 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 you might be unconvinced, but to me, this was actually one of the most compelling things about this book because it tripped me up a lot for the first 50 pages. And then I realized that we were about to read a war novel and war is chaotic and messy and it's incoherent and you miss things and they fly past you before you can make sense of them. And so does this prose and I think actually it's another book that bears rereading as we said last episode of Sarah Bernstein's Study for Obedience um, I think if you were able to cogently pick everything up from every sentence in this book it would not be as effective you're sort of reading it in this really emotional blur um, and that works for me the, like the prose really sustains the atmosphere of chaos and tragedy no let me clearly clearly that that's a matter of taste you know that that, that question what about the children <laughs> mine is what about the readers why wait no, what, what, why, <laughs> why not just give us a little paragraph break and also endlessly long sentences which are only endlessly long sentences because the book commas instead of full stops i mean maybe you've i mean obviously this again is taste for some that'll be mesmeric for me it became a bit of a tick no i mean i don't think it was necessarily mesmeric i just think it um i mean there are like bits of language that I found particularly like 
ingenious. Like I think a couple of times, Ailish sleeves a coat on. Oh, she, it's very uh, poetic, and I actually quite enjoyed it. She coins a, a trolley super, uh, supermarket from the trolley. There's quite a lot of where she likes to. Yeah, uh, turns verbs in. And <laughs> and that that I kind of can understand an impatience towards that. But as far as those sentences that kind of gallop ahead in present tense, it's not necessarily mesmeric. It's just sort of like you're being drowned in all of this detail and i think it's fitting giving the context i think it's fitting that you're overwhelmed by a war novel <laughs> no, fair enough well in fact that's interesting because i think this might be the book we most disagree on then probably paul lynch's uh, prophet song mm. Uh, and that just leaves us with which book joe it leaves us with the beasting by paul murray um it's by far the longest novel on this shortlist. Um, most of these come up to more or less 300 pages. And the Beasting clocks in at 642, the first edition hardcover. And again, another family saga. It's narrated by various members of the Barnes family, which include Patriarch Dicky, um, who is running his father's Volkswagen dealership into the ground, his beautiful and unmoored wife Imelda, whose backstory is fairly traumatic and involves Dickie's brother Frank, their teenage children Cass and PJ, uh, who are variously affected by their once affluent family's bankruptcy. Cass turns from star student to party girl just in time for her final exams at school, while PJ is blackmailed and physically threatened by a local boy who's convinced that Dickie has wronged his mother. And through these four narratives, each of which has quite a distinct style, we come to understand the significance of several underlying characters and events, such as the presence of a Polish mechanic named Richard or Richard, who kind of inveigles his way into the Barnes's lives, um, a piece of family lore about Imelda being stung by a bee on her wedding day, the dynamic between the Barnes's and a rich cattle farmer named Big Mike and his Brazilian housekeeper. Um, but ultimately, the novel rests principally on the secrets each character feels they cannot divulge and the actions their shame drives them towards. And um, I think just funny and tragic and to me, at least, possibly the easiest novel on this shortlist to like. How do you feel about it, James? I absolutely love this. I mean, as a spoiler alert, it is my favourite by some distance. Um, I read it last and, uh, and I must say it was great to just have, you know, shapely sentences. <laughs> Proper paragraphs that last as long as a paragraph should be and remind you of what a lovely thing a paragraph can be <laughs> if, it, if it ends at just the right time. Also, even, you know, some jokes, even jokes in slightly bad taste. I mean, hurrah. <laughs> so it starts with um, with Cass, who's the t t teenage daughter and her friend Elaine, uh, and they're looking at Miss Universe Island pictures. And uh, it says um, they all had some ad adversity they had overcome. One had been a refugee from a war in Africa. Another had needed surgery when she was a small girl. A very thin contestant had once been very fat. <laughs> the adversity had to be something bad, like a learning disability, but not something really bad, like being chained up in a basement for 10 years by a paedophile. <laughs> now, 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 see, at last, some inappropriate laughter that, that we wanted. And in fact, a bit later, they go to see the family, the family photos. Elaine wants to see, this is Cassie's sort of glamorous friend, Elaine, who, who she rather looks up to. And, and, and uh, uh, they're in the good room where, strictly speaking, they shouldn't have been. But Elaine wanted to look at Uncle Frank, who she thought was hot, even though he was dead. Now, <laughs> there's that, something quite tragic in no, that, though. No, no, exactly. Now, this is how the book works. So that's that just seems a funny line there. But as the book goes on, 
And this is how the book works all the way through. The fact that Uncle Frank was hot and is dead <laughs> uh, is crucial to the lives of everyone involved. And that happens all the time. Things that seem like jokes or passing stories or little references turn up to be setting up the plot or really the series of plots. And what, what a series of plots we got. I mean, you did an astonishing job of summarizing it there. But that, all of that's just for starters, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it just does not stop. So seen through all the, the eyes of all four family members in turn, quite long sections to start with. And they complicate everything. Remember when we interviewed George Saunders a, a couple of weeks ago, and um, his idea of how fiction should work is it constantly makes us rethink what we thought we thought. Yeah. And this does that all. It suggests that he would love this book. Um, and at the start of these two episodes, I made my I made my lament for lost unruliness and uh, how many of these books are a little too polite. And this one just really isn't. I mean, it's quite over the top, actually, quite lurid. Yeah. Uh, uh, almost melodramatic, I think. Unbelievably packed with incident. Um, there's bits of the supernatural. At times it reminded me of Thomas Hardy and the complete relentlessness of the bad luck of all the characters oh. involved, especially in timing. Remember the bit where Tess delivers a message, uh, a letter to Angel Claire, the Tess of the Durbervilles, where, which will solve quite a few of their problems, she thinks, and she sticks it under his door, but actually it goes under the carpet as well, so she, so Angel never sees it. Never gets it. it. Uh, you know, Tess was lucky, because <laughs> in this book, so many times when a character is about to do something that might save the day and then there's an interruption or a bad luck of some kind. Also reminded me, I don't know if you know John, John Irving, uh, well, according to Garth, Prayer for Owen Meany and stuff. But um, he, he, again, is quite melodramatic plots, quite a lot of them fueled by lust, but also great writing. I mean, I, I think, you know, sentence after sentence, paragraph after paragraph, page after page, for 400, 640 pages, as you say, you know, um, he, he, uh, um, Paul Murray just keeps the great sentences coming. I mean, you, you could argue almost that he overdoes the great similes but there are there's millions of those it's very funny it's very sad as you say and also that sense that the four family members do love each other but they just can't do it there's quite a lot of times in the in the book where people write a text message and then don't send it or write an email and then don't send it yeah. but the book is full of unsent messages of uh, you know a more metaphorical kind all the way through and that's the beginning of my rave i could go on for now but i'll leave it there did, did, did you he was excited by this book as was that? Yeah, I I adored it. I think um, we were talking earlier about the fact that this shortlist, at least, measuring good is kind of comes on a scale relative to each novel. And but I think the beasting is just objectively. I, I'm going to use a phrase of yours: ripping good yarn. <laughs> it's just like one of the things that seems to be a recurring theme on this shortlist at least to me is that um it's fiction that's close to home for the writers perhaps with the exception of uh, this other eden but that's actually to a fault but i digress um to to me it's just so beautiful to have this um man in his mid-40s opening this you know huge novel within the consciousness of a teenage girl and <laughs> convincing me so from your point completely i think the only unconvincing thing is the text speak and the shortening of words and misspelling of words but i i'm completely willing to overlook that because it's utterly believable and it happens again and again and again um you've got this kind of i think now often compared to molly bloom kind of um passages of imelda um who is vain and sort of a bit too quick-tempered and um a bit uh too romantic but still believable as a character 
the, the flaws that she has are believable. Her background is just the perfect amount of traumatic and she's by no means made into an angel. I'm trying so hard not to spoil this. No, it's, uh, no there's so much plot to spoil. And, yeah. uh, but, 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 and we'll try and not spoil any of it because it's so great. And Imelda's father is a kind of, well, interesting character. Yeah, <laughs> oh, no, we can't spoil we anything. Can't. But um, I just think to um, have this variety of voices which are all written with care and with really kind of exquisite attention to detail is uh, on this shortlist so refreshing and i i adored it but it's a book of enormous plenitude and richness and so on but all the many many plots and all the revelations and everything actually all build up in the end to a single friday night where the stories of all four of them separately are reaching their climax and then when that happens they intermingle and nothing reaches another climax i mean it is it is you know, it is it it it's shaped. It's it uses coincidence. It has improbabilities in it, but I think that's just all part of its massive, generous, un, and again, unruliness of the unruliness that I've missed yeah. quite, in quite a lot of these other books. I feel like, in a way, we've been less tidy or thorough with our assessment of this book because we it's just straightforwardly brilliant. <laughs> so that's the Beasting by Paul Murray, and I I think we both adore it. Yeah, we do. And it's great to end on a high, actually. Yeah, really <laughs> finally. <laughs> uh, no, a book I fell on hungrily, actually, in, in, in this context. So there we go. That's our shortlist in total. And just to recap, um, in the first episode, we covered If I Survive You by Jonathan Escoffery, This Other Eden by Paul Harding and Study for Obedience by Sarah Bernstein. And today we've spoken about uh, Western Lane by Chetna Maru. Prophet Song by Paul Lynch and The Beasting by Paul Murray. So I guess all that remains really is to pick and choose our favourites, speculate on what will happen okay. on the night of the ceremony. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, should we should we do a, should we do a top three in reverse order? So what's what's third for you, Joe? I'm gonna I'm gonna go for Study for Obedience by Sarah Bernstein as my third. Okay, I think my third place goes to. Western Lane by Chetna Maru. And you, you, you did say you quite like a tie. If, if it had been a tie, what would the other one have been? It would have been Prophet Song. But I think ultimately, um, I'm going for Western Lane in third place because I think that Chetna Maru is in greater command of her prose. Um, which is not to say that Paul Lynch isn't, but I think um, it's a more finely crafted novel. Okay. Uh, my second is Chetna Maru's Western Lane. Mm hmm. Your second is? My second is The Beasting by oh, Paul Murray. Joe. <laughs> Why is that your favourite? You said it was the most entertaining. It's quite interesting that. So your most entertaining, the one you, let's face it, enjoyed the most, um, isn't isn't your winner. There are different forms of enjoyment. Sure. So I think one form of enjoyment is entertainment and the other form of enjoyment for me. Do I reveal my first now? Yeah, yeah I suppose you better have it. Well, first. it's Study for Obedience by Sarah Bernstein. And um, I, that presents a completely different form of... This is purely personal taste. I'm very aware that I might sound a bit pretentious, um, but I take very great pleasure in being manipulated by prose in ways that I don't quite realise and picking at it to find out what exactly has been done to my brain. And although the Murray is the most entertaining, 
ultimately that's just not the most important thing that fiction can do for me i think i can just as easily be entertained by my friends down the pub well uh, 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 you won't be shocked to hear that my favorite by as i say some distance is uh paul murray's the beast thing i just think it's all all the basic stuff that novels can do it kind of restored it you know plot you got your great characters you got your as sentence by sentence writing is fantastic i mean it's 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 it, to me it's pretty much a dream um, so now an uh, uh, um, interesting question. We have our personal favourites. Yours is the Beasting, mine is Study for Obedience. But what do you think will actually win? So it's just we've got the same top three just in, sli- in a slightly different order. Oh, we order. do actually. Yeah, we do, yeah. We should mention that the three that didn't make on Nod, you, you gave an honourable mention to uh, Prophet Song by Paul Lynch. Uh, and then the other two, uh, I, I, If I Survive You and This Other Eden by Paul Harding. Yes. I mean, I must say, I think it's very difficult. I, I mean, I'm never any good at predicting what's going to win. I, 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 because it is, it is so personal taste, and not only is it personal taste, it's personal taste of five very different people. Mm. But I would be somewhere on the gutted side if the beasting didn't win. Study for obedience. You know, all the things you say are true, but oh no, I, I don't I, think I, it's going to win at all. Unfortunately, I, if, I imagine booksellers are, are all the way with Paul Murray, aren't they? That, that's the one that's going to fly off the shelves yeah. if it wins more than the others. I think. But Paul Lynch could 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 do that too. Maybe this other, other Eden could as well. On, yes. on the grounds that it's so exactly what everybody seems to want to hear at the moment. Yes, I think honestly, I think um, the the three that seem most likely to win to me are the Beasting because it is just a crowd pleaser in every sense. And as you say, this other Eden, I think, whilst perhaps it wasn't for us, to me is also a potential winner because it does seem to um speak to that instinct readers have at the moment to want to be good and to want to be virtuous and most people seem to think that the novel achieves that ambition quite well despite our reservations <laughs> our serious reservations yes uh, if you want to hear those you can listen to, to last week's podcast i would love study for obedience to win i think the only precedent that a book like this would win is something like the milkman by anna burns which was a huge surprise winner in 2018 yeah. yes um but i just somehow don't see that happening this year so I, I think I have to agree with you. I think the bee sting is just, you can so clearly see it as as the winner. I agree with that completely. It, it, it kind of restores your faith in what a pretty much traditional novel yeah. of social realism can do, yeah. uh, which is, you know, break your heart, make you laugh, relish every sentence. Uh, yes, no, I, I, think it's, I think it is in the shaggy vein. And that concludes part two of our overview of this year's Booker Prize shortlist. Remember, if you haven't heard what we thought of If I Survive You by Jonathan Escoffery, The Southern Eden by Paul Harding, and Study for Obedience by Sarah Bernstein, do listen to part one. And you can find out more about all of this year's shortlist at thebookerprizes.com, including interviews with all six authors, as well as extracts from each book performed by actors including Katrina Balfi, Nina Wadia and Susan Lynch. And if you've been inspired to read any of the shortlist, which, let's face it, you will have been because James and I are brilliant, why not share your thoughts at the Booker Prize Book Club? Head to facebook.com slash thebookerprizes to do that. And remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok and Substack at the Booker Prizes. Join us next week for a special episode in which James interviews all six shortlisted authors. Until then, goodbye. Bye. 
The Booker Prize podcast is hosted by Joe Hamia and me, James Walton. It's produced and edited by Kevin Miolo. And the executive producer is John Davenport. It's a Daddy's Super Yacht production for the Booker Prizes.